trapped in this wasteland. I am the one who runs from both the living <laughs> and the dead. A man reduced to a single instinct. Survive. Good ass trailer, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> okay, welcome to Movie Night Extravaganza. Um, I'm here with my always co-host, Jay Andrew World. Um, Conan Neutron from Protonic Reversal, the podcast, and Conan Neutron and the Secret Friends. And, uh, of course, Kira Rossler, the ex-bassist of Black Flag, and an Emmy and Oscar award-winning sound editor for such big titles as Game of Thrones, John Adams, and of course, Mad Max Fury Road, which is the movie that we're here to talk about tonight. So um, one thing that I wanted to start with, I guess, I'm, I'm assuming that probably most people that are watching this have seen uh, Fury Road. And usually, you know, we, we start with something from a director, but I wanted to start with something political, actually, um, which is a clip of Kamala Harris um, talking about uh, water wars and how the future of... of uh, <laughs> of our warfare is going to be you know waged over water which is something that fury road is about it's about building back up our infrastructure in a way that we leapfrog so it's not just about repair it's about building things it's about fixing things and building things we talk about water policy that's a big deal here in chicago and in illinois water policy to do better well we need to construct places where we capture water Places where we store water. And here's the other thing, because I also, you know, I'm in a lot of meetings on foreign policy. You know, for years and generations, wars have been fought over oil. 
in a short matter of time, they will be fought over water. So when we think about building up our economy around our infrastructure on something like water policy, it's literally about jobs. It's about the fundamental source of life that Tammy Duckworth was talking about. It will sustain life. And it's about strengthening up our nation around a commodity that is a precious commodity. That, that mask is really reminding me of a Morton Joe at that moment. <laughs> Honestly, though, like the word is terrifying. No, she's not wrong. And I think uh, neither is Fury Road for, you know, making water kind of the, the central. I mean, you know, it's kind of a um, it's kind of a fake idea because the real commodity, obviously, is humans. And uh, kind of that's what the movie is about. But I think that, you know, water is such a central force. And uh, Morton Joe has that line where he talks about, do not, my friends, become addicted to water for it will take hold of you and you'll resent its absence. But but also like water is life. Um, yeah, which, aren't we all addicted to water? Yeah. <laughs> addicted to <But> air. <laughs> like like the th the thing is is like water is not a commodity because water is a necessity of life. And if you commoditize a necessity of life, you, you're you're uh, dealing with uh, issues of of now like um, who has more of a right to live and and you're you know you're you're uh, allowing. The powerful become more powerful. I mean, I which mean, which is exactly what the story is about because yeah. Mortal Joe has the water and he has the yeah. power. Yeah, and in the same way that you know, when when Kamala says you know it's in our national interest, America in that case, and obviously the powerful corporate interests in America are the ones who have the water, Nestle and so forth. So it, it really becomes kind of a terrifying uh, signifier that like Fury Road is absolutely on point with that. Yeah, if it's the government, it's the same thing. Yeah. So I don't know. So that that was kind of a, a starting point, I guess, to talk about, um, you know, our tendency to demonize. Huh? <laughs> but it's also, you know, our tendency to demonize under scarcity, to demonize and like uh, mythologize around these things. Like you already see it with um, with, you know, conversations about people wasting water like, oh, well, we don't have enough water. People, you know, you're wasting it, which um, is is perfectly like on point to the same thing that Amor and Joe's talking about, I think. Um, you know, creating these national myths or these uh, warlord myths that, you know, the reason that people don't have enough water isn't that they're hoarding it. The reason that people don't have enough water is because, you know, they're water addicts and it's their fault. And, uh, you know, so that was kind of a, an interesting starting. <laughs> well, California, it's a constant concern. I mean, I live, have lived in Wisconsin for the past, like, uh, almost four years and they don't care it's never in the conversation at all. Whereas my entire life in California, it's been series of, of droughts and uh, don't take too long a shower. And Kira knows all about this. Like they're always, you know, water cops are always <laughs> ready to be like, Hey, don't do that. I remember the big, uh, Not actual like, water cops, by the way, but, <laughs> yeah, no. but, but in 1990, there was a big, uh, special and Chevy chase was on there, you know, like, uh, they, they were all giving advice how to conserve water. And he like uh, every once in a while they just have Chevy Chase go shower with a friend, shower <laughs> with a friend, <laughs> you know, like that's how you can serve. But like you know, the the whole idea is, is to like um, uh, put put the onus on uh, the the you know uh, we, us as a consumer as opposed to where the actual problems lie. Right. It's it's not us that's the problem. It is you know the corporations with the pollution. Mm -hmm. It's the um, Corporations taking the water from the, from the lands. It's the um, 
Uh, it's it's poisoning the water supply with uh, the oil spills, uh, the not replacing the lead pipes like like in Flint, which I don't think is too far from you, Conan. Yeah, and and if I may, one thing that people not in California may not realize is how much water rights is a big deal in the Central Valley, where a vast majority of the world's food is grown. And it really boils down to we want to be able to water our crops the same way that we did in the 1930s because it costs us less money. So what yeah. they do is they flood the fields. They flood the fields. And, and they have large amounts of political donations, political lobbies and stuff that uh, they frame it elegantly as water rights. But it's basically we want to do whatever we want to do. It could cost us less money. It's not efficient. There are efficient and modern ways to do it, and they won't do it that way. But this is a ubiquitous Central Valley thing. If you go back to um, uh, Border Incident, which is a 1949 uh, noir film, uh, you can actually see that in the uh, the way the uh, they, they irrigated like these these uh, deep trenches uh, around the fields, uh, so so where they would flood it and allow the water to kind of come in. So so yeah, you can you know you can see that in uh, the the, uh, the the landscape even. Yeah. Well, so bringing it back to Fury Road. Um... I, I think that, I got us way off right. That's, a, right there. <laughs> that's that's an incredibly uh, prescient warning. Um, I think that you know Fury Road is obviously climate disaster apocalypse, which makes it the second movie in a row that we have done about climate uh, disaster and the apocalypse because we just did Snowpiercer for our for our fourteenth episode. So um, you know it, it it brings us back to that kind of point where you know it seems like in Fury Road both some kind of uh, a man-made nuclear um, you know war has taken place, which has kind of rendered everybody um, incredibly unhealthy and uh, cancerous. And this seems to be going on for the next few generations in a row. Um, but also, you know, climate disaster, it, it, it's completely like everything is a desert. Every, you know, green place uh, is now kind of destroyed and taken over. Even the last ones that made it through this disaster have been completely, you know, decimated by drought. So that, you know, I, I felt like that clip is, is interesting because it shows that we're definitely going in, in that in, in at least one of those directions. You know, the droughts in California, the climate change are getting worse. So as as Fury Road, you know, was a few years ago, it, it's interesting that, that George Miller already kind of understood intrinsically that, like, that's the direction we were heading in. Well, and, um, and it goes back to the first Mad Max, you know, which was 40 years ago, you know. <laughs> I mean, I mean, George was 39 when he made Mad Max, the original, right? So he was already an adult and already had, had as we well know, some pretty complex ideas about the world and the, and the apocalypse that might or might not come. And, and that was really starting to be established that, you know, way back. Yeah. And, and that first Mad Max, it was more about uh, oil. Uh, and gasoline, um, but that which, apocalyptic yeah. sensibility was that was also out of the the uh, the the um, inspired by like the um, the the oil shortages of the seventies. Yeah, the oil yeah. crisis. So, so, so yeah, it's a was, little, yeah. you know, there's it, a different crisis that that was uh, inspiring it, but it's it's built into this one cohesive universe where where uh, I mean he spent twenty years making this movie, so. Yeah, I was gonna say there's a theory. There's a couple of theories about the chronology of, of the movie, not the least of which is that um, obviously that the, the Mad Max we see in Fury Road is like the feral child grown up. But I think one of the more interesting one ones is that Fury Road is like an, uh, I think you call it an interquel, like not prequel, not sequel, but like between. So it's between Mad Max and the Road Warrior, and that because you kind of see like in Fury Road, like he's kind of figuring it out. 
right? Like he's he's not he doesn't come in like stone badass like action hero like savior of the universe. But then between Mad Max and Road Warrior, like he's already kind of a badass. So I think that's an, like a way more interesting. And, and I think George Hay doesn't give a damn about the chronology or doesn't think about continuity at all. But I, I was watching interviews with him yesterday because I cut some clips for this conversation, and he was talking about the chronology, and he's like, it actually doesn't. None of the chronology adds up, and like. It would have to be three weeks. It would have to be three weeks after the first one. So it'd have to be like he gets he gets thrown into the situation. Three weeks later, it's Fury Road, and then he's like the chronology would have to be like on such a short like a short interval. <laughs> that, but there's um, also the idea that like like Mad Max as the folk hero, right? As like you know you know whether you're like multiversal theory or just like literally people telling stories around a campfire or whatever the equivalent would be in the post-apocalypse, like. That it doesn't matter. It doesn't matter at all. But of course, the internet loves grinding on stuff that doesn't matter. We all know that. Yeah. <laughs> cinema, cinema sins, and, and everything else. And, and the uh, the other thing, just just kind of uh, pick pick up on Conan's point there. Um, uh, if if you actually, uh, if I remember correctly, during the uh, you know when the third movie came out, um, George Miller was talking about how like uh, at that point because the timeline was kind of shifting a bit, um, and, and how he just kind of imagines it as like not as a uh chronological story but as 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 a like as tales being told like like so so the the narrator of the story isn't reliable because we're only we're, we're getting like a watered down version of it we're not actually seeing the the actual events but bringing it to you know Kira and the and the you know sound uh, design teams really excellent i mean work on this um like well deserved oscar winning work on this um I, I thought it was interesting that during these interviews that uh, people did with George Miller, a bunch of them in a row, um, he he keeps talking about the process of, of movie making as being like music or like being like he compares his uh, his his wife's editing work to being like an orchestra. Like, um, and I and I cut a couple clips of it. I don't know if I mean I we could play them or not. It doesn't really matter for I guess the point that I'm trying to make. But I was wondering um, when he was planning all of this out. Uh, how much of the sound design did he already have on those storyboards mm. um, planned out? And, you know, how much, uh, how much was, you know, working with the sound design team to kind of come up with, you know, some of these incredible, like, like incredibly multi-layered um, sound situations, like, you know, the entire, the entire chase across the Fury Road is, you know, on, on, on a level must be like, I, like, I don't even know how you, how you manage to, uh, you know, change some of the sounds and like and and create like both music and diegetic dialogue like in the story explosions gunshots flying in the air yeah like (laughs) like it's all going at once so i was you know i I was hoping you you could talk a little bit about that process i'm sure a lot was going on in george's head the whole time that being said the the part of the process where this all um you know where where the sound folks start getting involved is actually often quite late in the game right so what uh, some of what they did to in order to capture george's vision um is that during the whole post process there's somebody videotaping george like all the time <laughs> so that if he's in editing you know video editing and something comes to his mind and he wants to talk about this for cgi or this for sound or whatever that that's being captured and he doesn't have to you know compartmentalize that and save it for later he can just freeform express himself and then someone would literally transcribe and color code his 
commentary so that we could then the sound folks, you know, look at the red stuff, for example, because that would, you know, during his whatever meetings he had, he was talking about sound here, you know, and then he was talking about visuals there and he was talking about, you know, music and score there and, and everybody would get their uh, notes. So you were constantly being fed stuff from outside of meetings, which is incredibly rare. Like usually, you know, we might have some spotting sessions with the the filmmakers, but but it's, you know, that's where we talk about sound. But for him, they recognized that he was going to be talking about sound whenever and music and CGI and everything. So he just had to be filmed. And uh, so by the time I was on board, there was already, you know, a bunch of sort of documentation of George's ideas that had already been just saved for us to, but the actual, you know, starting point um, actually happened years before I came on the show because he had an Australian sound team working for years on this movie that took many years to complete. And uh, so they already had this, this process flow of funneling that information through to, to affect people, to dialogue and ADR people, to Foley people, to, you know, c composer, you know, everybody was getting these bits and pieces of information um, that had already happened whenever they jumped in. Um, but they, and then the American team wasn't involved until the initial mixing started. At first, he just had um, some American mixers come, uh, start to mix the thing. And then um, they were the ones to first sort of uh, um, pose that there was something needed in terms of a little more sound design uh, direction and a little bit more on the dialogue side as well. So I, I was brought over with uh, another guy to uh, jump into the Australian team to add another element of, you know, help, <laughs> if you will. Um, the tracks, all, you know, what, what often happens in what you know, by coming back to what you're talking about, about what's gonna what's gonna be the sound thing at any given moment of the movie is in preparation, everybody is going all the time, right? So so my dialogue and ADR track is full and the composer's track is full and the sound effects people's track is full, right? Like, so you really have hundreds and hundreds of tracks and layers of stuff. And it's the mixing process where you start going, weeding out and saying, no, that has to poke through, that has to poke through. This is a more of a music moment. This is where the sound effects have to take over. We have to feel the vehicles, you know, whatever, right? So that again becomes a time when he is sort of massaging it. So everybody has created though these full tracks, which are always, you know, being changed because the picture's being changed. So then the sound's being changed. So you have these timelines of, you know, huge amount of stuff. And then he's poking different things through, um, doing more ADR, doing more, having more sound design done, having more special effects done, whatever. And then it gets remixed again. And were there things from the actual like vehicles and stuff that he kept in there, like uh, sounds that had happened organically? No, the production. No, no, the production sound was ninety percent unusable. That includes the dialogue. Ninety um, percent dust, probably. Very well. <laughs> Between between 
you know, the fact that you have stunts going on the whole time and you have the vehicles going. So the dialogue itself is not going to be well recorded. There's so much going on that, uh, that no, you're not trying to capture that vehicle in that moment. And, and although he captured the dialogue, George happened to be someone who, who very rarely for a director is really into ADR. So he was fine with the fact that his stuff had to be all replaced. He came, you know, he did a bunch of animation, right? So he did, he did the, the, the Babe series, right? So he had done animation. What he learned there was I can improve on performances. I can, you know, I can cut my performances together in his mind. There was no sync limitations. He could just have his, his people, you know, his actors say the lines a bunch of times, and then he could sit in the edit room and cut together the dialogue to the picture, just like he would in animation. Now, uh, that put quite a lot of pressure on those of us who were trying to edit that ADR into sync. That was not something he would sit to. He would sit and pick ADR takes and then leave me in the room trying to make it all work somehow. But um, so he didn't have a, a strong sensibility about trying to maintain anything. So the reason that I was asking about that is um, because he like very publicly uh, skewed CGI for this movie as, as much as possible. I mean, obviously he took wires out and he took, you know, stunt uh, people out and he like moved, you know, some takes into other things, but you know, pretty publicly, he didn't really want to do that much uh, CGI in this. So I was wondering well, how for much obvious, of that... obvious reasons you want, you know, and again, this this is not him alone. That, that organic sensibility, humans can really still, you know, we're very versed in it, right? We know when we're looking at something organic and when we're looking at something that isn't. So directors are very conscious of the fact that if they tilt too far in one direction, they are getting into supernatural or sci-fi, and that is a whole genre, and it's completely legitimate genre, but if you want to be in the organic world, you have to really watch your step, uh, and the CGI is incredible what they do, but um, but yeah, he wanted this to exist organically in the world, for sure. It makes it a little more timeless that way too, right? Like it doesn't, it's not going to look dated when the effects change. Like as much as like, I still think Terminator 2 is a fantastic movie, but you look at the effects now versus when it came out at the time, I was like, oh my God, I've never seen anything like this. Now it's like, oh yeah, that's okay. That's like, no, you don't realize how many tens of millions of dollars that costs like at that moment in time. That was the upper echelon of upper echelon for effects. But uh, but your <laughs> eyes, this is just, this. what always gets to me is water an ocean. I mean, there's just nothing you can do to make water look natural or look, um, make a sea or waves really look natural that aren't, yeah. you know, it, those movies that are more CGI in that way are just never going to sell it to me. Which is why water is such a commodity, you know? <laughs> <laughs> um, no, but like, even I was watching, um, someone posted uh, a, a clip from uh, Spider-Man 2 where there's that really long fight scene uh, with Doc Ock. And I was watching that earlier today because, you know, the new Spider-Man is coming out. And I remember watching it in the theater and thinking, like, this is amazing. Like, I mean, I was a kid, obviously, but I was thinking, like, this is amazing. This is, like, the most realistic fight scene. They're fighting on a train. Like, who would ever think of this? And then I watched it today, and I was like, oh, no, like, this is terrible. Like, the CGI in it is not good. <laughs> 
Well, yeah, in the same way that like look at something like Gremlins or something, right? Like all the practical effects there, like they still they kind of look otherworldly at the time, and they still kind of look otherworldly and kind of freaky, even when it's being cute. And that's, I think that that's totally noticeable. Carol, one thing I wanted to ask you about is, um, you know, with all the different things that you had to deal with, this seemed like there maybe were some kind of like mission improbable. <laughs> kind of uh tasks right because you're talking about these like these stack tracks all this different stuff and and having listened recently uh and watched recently and hearing like some like the doppler effects stuff and like i like you know folks in music know there's certain tricks that you can do to kind of uh, draw the attention of, of the listener not not including the fact that um you know comping the dialogue like you know i'm, I'm a perfunctory vocalist at best trying to be good whenever i record music with my band like we do uh comp takes we take the best of the vocal and then like most people that aren't in the recording world will never think of that but i just think like that's just like the vocal like you have like your adr you have like the score you've got like things exploding and, well, and there's honestly, just all kinds of different is, things to handle this is honestly true in most movies, you'd be kind of surprised to know how many tracks show up on the final mix stage for even a movie that is not an action movie. I'm sometimes surprised how wide sound effects editors will edit. And there's a lot of reasons for that. If you think about it from a, a mixer's standpoint and, and imagine their fingers on all the faders, right, on the big mixing console, they want things to be organized. And when you start trying to organize stuff, you keep them in distinct tracks. So, so sound effects people will have a set of tracks dedicated to just the tires in the various surfaces. That'll be a set of tracks. And then you will have, you know, squeaks and bumps and, you know, me metallic. And then you will have winds. And then you will have, so you will have hundreds of tracks you know, not always full, right? Because there are times when maybe if you're interior, you, your winds are a lot less interesting than exterior or whatever. Water is given its own dedicated tracks, of course, but maybe there are scenes where that's not applicable. So you'll have empty spaces too. So it's also because it's organized, you end up with all of these tracks. In big crowd scenes, I will suddenly have, you know, a bunch of tracks of voices where in other times when we're in the vehicles, we have a few voices going on at once. And even then their dialogue, some hopefully most of the time one person's talking at once, you know. So uh so you do end up just getting very broad and, and that is true on on all movies. And that's why the mixers in our field get the big bucks because they're the ones who ultimately have to translate what the director is asking for, for pulling up and down the faders in a way to, to supply him of that in a reasonable amount of time because mixing stages cost like $2,500 a minute, you know, or something, you know, so the, so the time can't be spent that you would expect. It's not like the time when they're cutting the picture where they're just him and his wife sitting there editing, you know, till all eternity on the mixing stage, every minute counts. So uh, that's why they are often treated with a lot of deference and, and treated as somewhat the, the top echelon in the sound field, because they are the ones who ultimately the buck stops with them to, to pull the right things up and the right things down at all these different moments you get a you get a passive aggressive uh mixer and 
You know, the whole movie is shot from there. No, I'm <laughs> probably going to get fired in that case. No, I'm just kidding. Um, frankly, the director still calls the yeah. show. No, I'm, I'm, <laughs> I'm completely kidding. Um, so one of the things, one of the scenes that I, I pointed out to, like I rewatched it last night and I pointed out to Andy and Conan, um, for, like as one that I wanted to talk about was, uh, you know, after the whole chase scene, um, when Max gets thrown off the, uh, off the rig, and he's in the he's in the sand and there's that moment where everything's quiet after like 20 straight minutes of um of like loud noises where it's like really intense and he pushes himself up and you hear every single grain of sand in slow motion coming off of him and i was you know because i was really i was listening to the you know i was listening really hard to it because i i wanted to hear every you know every piece of it so i could talk about it and that just kind of blew me away um just you know even even thinking of, of that uh you know that that I guess um, contrast between you know a, a fight or you know a whole chase that's just happened with every single element going at once, um, just switching to this to this like completely silent and then like almost, it almost sounds like uh, one of those rainmaker you know like when they when they go yeah so every single grain of sand though moving in tandem, um, I don't know I just found that like one of the most incredible and, and again this is why the production sound if it's not clean right it's just going to be a problem if you want the guy if you want to only hear his breathing and the sand falling right then the breathing you know pretty much can't be recorded there in the desert with the wind and now the crew moving around and it, right it's going to have to be breathing that we record separately and very carefully cut into sync to match his face and then have whatever sounds be added in order to you know create that moment so so each moment is is created and the production track you know is half the battle when you are using it is trying to make it not have any elements you don't want in it. That's my job as a dialogue editor, right? It's like somehow create uh, create seamless dialogue that isn't um, offering up any distracting things. And mixers also get paid a lot of money just to make dialogue somehow quiet when it's recorded in uh, often non-ideal settings. <laughs> And, and I mean, the dialogue is really important in this movie because there's so little of it, um, I think. So, you know, every piece of information that you're getting throughout, you know, the entire two hours is crucially important to understanding the story. There's um, actually quite a bit of dialogue in it. I know there are sections where it's like action packed, but even during those action scenes and those were the, some of the hardest, right? You, he st We still would then have pieces of information we needed to to exert in, you know, and you'd have this, you know, one little tidbit of dialogue and it's this, you know, all of this noise and music and sound and explosions and vehicles, right? And, but so-and-so, I can't, I can't really hurt, hear what she just said. It was this critical little bit, right? So it's again that, you know, carving out that little bit of space without it feeling like the music drops out to get that through. Well, and I think I, that's something I noticed with uh, the recent rewatch is how much that stuff came through and, and how in a lot of even action movies I like, you know, it's this important plot points are sort of drowned out by like, you bastard, you know, explosions. And it's like, whoa, what do you, hold on, back that up. What did you just say? And it's very artfully done. Uh, and I think that that's, I mean, are there any tricks to that? Like, do you like, you know, use any EQ settings or like booster? I'm not like giving away the store or anything, but like what? Well, like, no, no, there's no, there's no giving away. <laughs> no, there actually aren't a lot of tricks. I mean, honestly, the one of the big differences when you don't go 
to the movies to watch. You'd rather listen at your home, right? And one of the reasons the movie theater experience actually helps so much is because uh, there are more speakers, generally speaking. If you do not have a fancy sound set up at home to listen to movies, you don't have a dedicated center speaker. The movie theater does have a dedicated center speaker. That is where the dialogue is going to come from. And, and your, your music and effects can be pushed into a more of a left-right thing and in the surrounds and overhead now with Atmos, right? So you have these, you have this ability to to move sound away from the dialogue a little bit and dedicate that center space. But that's only if, if you see it in the theater. Um, so, and we're still always challenged to come up with a track which will play regardless. But, um, but yeah, I mean, yes, the human voice has a tendency to hit certain frequencies and, and, and you can do some things to recognize that and you know a low end rumble will will interfere less with a female voice especially than something right in that mid range where we talk because our ears are attenuated to that middle range where you know men and women speak you know so so you can do some stuff frequency wise but when you're being assaulted by a wall of sound you know even at a crowded restaurant, right? It, it doesn't have to be explosions in cars. It's tricky to pick out that one you're listening to uh, and want to hear. And, and the only real solution is a volume one. I always thought it was kind of interesting that, uh, you know, I'm actually good friends with uh, Mark Allen Miller, who uh, is a, as a producer and uh does a lot of mixing and, and absolutely loves like the challenge of mixing a, an album. Uh, he did um, uh, MIA's recent uh, re-release uh, um, uh, where, where he only had like a copy of a cassette and he was trying to master it for that. Uh, and, and he just absolutely loved the, uh, the challenge. And, and I was wondering if, if um, you know, cause I was looking on Discogs and you haven't really done a lot of uh, according to Discogs, which I know, Discogs doesn't even have half my albums on it that, that I've worked on because um, uh, I do cover art. <laughs> so, um, but so I know it's not like a great, uh, you know, resource to find out everything, but but it, it didn't really have you doing a lot of um, production work on albums outside of uh, uh, Dose, which is uh, the band that you have with your husband. Um, uh, my ex-husband. Ex-husband. Okay. I'm sorry. Just to be uh, clear, my husband is in the other room and he's not a bass player. <laughs> My um, apologies. Steve Discogs gets you into trouble. Yeah, no, yeah. No, I, so, I should have so, focused well, on Wikipedia. It's very similar in movies and in uh, music. There is uh, generally a hierarchy, if you will, of the people who are the decision makers, right? And you're right. I've been on a lot of records where I was not a key decision maker. Um, just like in most of the movies, I'm not a key decision maker on the mix. I'm I'm relied upon for certain things and not relied upon for certain things, just like I would be on a record. Now, uh, on Dose, we are both, you know, more of the decision makers. We're more of the songwriters. We're more of the producers. And, and you know, on different albums, especially on the last one, Mike gave me even more license to... Um, make decisions and and now my my solo record's coming out next month and and that i got to make all the dis final decisions on you know so it's very much 
dependent on the situation. And when you're not a decision maker, it's very important to know when to be a good team player <laughs> and to recognize that just because it doesn't sound the way you want it to sound, right? That doesn't mean it's wrong. It just means somebody else had a different sensibility. So uh, in the movies I work on, my opinion is rarely required for what the mix should. As a matter of fact, it's appreciated that I just keep it to myself unless you know, um, that's called upon. Is, is it almost like ADR is being like the bass player of, of movies? In some well, cases? No, the weird thing, of course, is the dialogue in ADR is absolutely critical to the, to the movie. But what happens is, is the, <laughs> the preparation and the, and the foundation you create the sync which is something I was talking about making, you know, presenting everything just so, so that the mixer has what he needs is, is critical, but deciding, you know, how loud it should be and how loud the every other sound's going to be that's competing with it and whether or not I can articulate every syllable the same way that George Miller can, <laughs> you know, that's, that's what's not required. My subjective sense of how loud things should be relative to each other, that's when it comes down to, well, George, what do you think? Right? And that's one of the reasons why it plays as such a fully articulated vision as a film, I think, too, is because he's thinking yeah. about it. So, no, like an immersive. Oftentimes yeah. the mixers, again, I'll go back to that as just being a role, which is ultimately, you know, they are because they're put in a position where they are sort of at the top of the sound totem pole at that point. And they, with the director and the filmmakers start to be this, you know, back and forth there of them talking about the technical aspects and working with them and discussing it with them. And the rest of the team hangs back unless they look at us to say, Hey, I want to get an, another ADR take, or can you have something here? Right. So, so they bring in a team maybe for, for a different piece or element, but the actual decision makings on the mix, you know, too many cooks, you've got just the mixers and, and often the, the, the director, maybe the picture editor being the key people that are, are in the discussions of what's going on here. Oh, and the composer, <laughs> you know, but oftentimes the composer, it's interesting, it will come somewhat late in the game, we'll do a playthrough of a, of a reel, or if they, as they say in Australia, a spool, which is, you know, <laughs> the movie is cut down into these pieces, right? We'll, we'll run that. And that's the point at which suddenly the composer is coming in and going, wow, the sound effects are getting all over the music and I can't hear my music. It's not being highlighted, you know? And, and so then you start getting this power struggle between the music and the sound effects. A lot of times in an action movie like Fury Road, this was nonstop. And it's not a contentious thing. It's not an even an ego thing necessarily. It's just it's just physics, right? There's a whole bunch of sounds going on. What, do, what are we going to hear? And what are we going to, you know, tuck a little bit under so that something else gets featured? And that's, and that's incredibly important in Fury Road specifically. Um, like, because, you know, the action is all happening spatially um, in a really small area. You know, it's like for a lot of the movie, it's just going on during this chase, which all of these, you know, rigs for the most part are next to each other. At times, you know, some of them are in groups and then they're in other groups, but still, like, it, it, it's incredibly important that, you know, people are fighting on top of the rig and then all of a sudden it, it cuts to the inside of the rig and then, you know, it's the next one over and all of those things are going to have completely different um, 
spatially completely different sounds that you know have to be put to the front so like it really i mean it really is a masterpiece in that way um yeah i mean it was that the mixing process went on you know as as is like to happen but oftentimes they won't let it uh we had a full mix schedule uh and and mixed the movie and then stopped and worked a bunch more and then remixed the movie again <laughs> because uh time ran out on the original mix and stuff still needed to happen and and george was given a huge amount of license a lot of times schedules are not allowed to be quite that extensive and not that much money is allowed to be spent you know uh, but in this case, there were two full final mixes um, with in between a period of 10 weeks, six of which I spent in Sydney, most of the time in a room with George going through new ADR takes, cutting new ADR takes and basically rejiggering all of the dialogue um, and then going back and co coming here for the second mix, uh, then remixing things because whenever you change the dialogue, of course, everything changes because now you got to poke those lines through. But also a whole new set of sound design was laid over the top of the sound design that was already there. It's just it was insanity. Um, but the actual you know, number of mixed days was much more than in most movies. Um, and, and I think you, you put your head on it. You know, that's the kind of movie it is. It was just that much of a struggle to figure out what are the right sounds and how to poke them through and then live with it and then change it. The actual picture changed as well, of course. So all the sounds had to be rejiggered uh, sequentially, sync-wise. Yeah, and it seems like that's kind of how the whole process of this movie specifically went, right? Because the, the storyboarding... Um, I know, I know Andy, like, you know, Andy draws and he does comics and stuff. And it seems like it, it almost was like a fully fleshed out, uh, you know, comic for the most part all around this, this giant room, right. That the storyboarding aspect of it, um, like they, they wrote, they wrote the entire, the entire movie as the storyboard, uh, like down to the, the final details. And, and I was watching, um, I was watching one of the storyboard artists talk about it and say like, you know, he would have an idea like, oh, maybe this person's missing a limb. And you'd have to go and, and just change all of the storyboards all over again to reflect that like so i don't know it seems like a very incredible process that that um like the completeness of it i guess and the thoroughness of it kind of probably extended the timeline by a, a huge well, and again you've got that anim animation sensibility which george has so so that probably had the same thing where he wanted to see it laid out in that storyboard fashion because he was used to to doing that kind of work in the animation field as well and then having it fleshed out uh after the fact in some ways you know but that the actual writing is happening you know as drawings in front of him so that he can be shuffling things around and adding details to them um, and my understanding too is it was like they started this movie back in the uh, the late '90s, um, and, and continued to, to to work on this uh, throughout. Like uh, you know, he stopped to work on Justice League, which never came out, and and uh, I can't remember if there's any other projects he did between uh, the end of the '90s and this film, uh, other than Justice League. But uh, you know, so so like he spent he he put that time into it. It's not just that you know he he did all this work. It was. It was over time 
too to develop the story and change it and that's why uh he has like what like three furiosa movies and two more mad max movies uh <laughs> you know ready to go because he has he does well but he has that kind of mind too but uh, didn't he do i mean he did babe and ha happy feet in there happy feet that's what i'm missing yes yeah, yeah i was gonna say it's not like he was just sitting around on his hands or nothing no, that no. Is an and, and happy feet too he had we that, he working, has that under his belt. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> we were working insane hours. I mean, and most of us were used to it, right? And this guy's 72 years old, and he's matching us hour for hour for the most part. And most directors don't try to be there every bloody minute. And this guy was just, he was incredibly uh, forceful in the sense of just being able to keep up with the pace of this uh, monster effort. Uh, people were dropping people were <laughs> you would walk by someone's office you know who would just be kind of there at their screen you know kind of maybe awake maybe not their eyes are open just you know it was just uh he was a very impressive force from a standpoint of sheer energy um too i i got to the point where i uh, embarrassed to say that I would hide from him at times and <laughs> just to have a cup of tea, you know, because he was so intense, you know, when he was over my shoulder and we were working, it was so intense that, you know, I would try to like get five more minutes before I ended up in the room with him because then it was like till a lunch break or till he had a meeting, most likely I was going to be just there going, you know, just, um, very impressive uh, person with a lot, you know, fingers in a lot of pies. And I am not surprised at all that he had all this laid out in terms of what he wanted to do next and still does. And we'll keep, he'll be another one of those that keeps going forever. It sounds like his work ethic is very similar to Greg Ginn in a way. <laughs> Boy, there's a there's a opening up a nest of <laughs> yes. There's a guy who likes to practice. You know, he like, he plays guitar ten hours a day. I think George would absolutely uh, outwork that man. <laughs> That's saying a lot too. Yeah. <laughs> um. So I guess there's two themes I wanted to talk about in this movie because um a lot of the time we go through each movie and it's kind of evolved over time to like first kind of just going through the plot um, to now kind of we go through things thematically. So a theme that I wanted to go through, and, and this definitely plays into the sound editing aspect too, is, is trauma. Throughout this movie, it's incredibly clear that every character is dealing with this post-apocalyptic trauma. And, you know, and it manifests itself, I think, number one, in, in the fact that literally like the half-lifes of, of you know a, a lot of the characters are happening because they have this cancer and they've you know invented i mean the warlords kind of invented um this whole like kind of demigod system i guess because you know that's how you have to do it so they're so their trauma is kind of um like the war boys trauma is kind of negated by uh this kind of um uh like this frenzy i guess of devotion to a morton joe but at the same time you know um Max is going through his trauma and you see it throughout the movie. And I guess that's where the, the sound um, editing piece comes in because he's having these hallucinations um, the entire time and he's seeing his family who he let die. And, and he's everyone saying like, you, you said you were going to save us. You said you were going to save us. And, you know, it, it plays into like, you know, redemption. Like everybody's trying to get redeemed for what they've done um, traumatically throughout this whole 
uh, this whole like post-apocalyptic um, wasteland, I guess. So, um, I mean, opening it up to anyone that wants to uh, comment on that, but that's that well, kind of. In some ways, Furiosa is the only one who who seems completely impervious to whatever trauma she has endured. She is just she is the rock upon which the whole story is really based. You know, she has to succeed she's going to pull you know pull these women out of there and and in a way max is just in in her way most much of the time right so he's just another obstacle in her path trying to to achieve what she's going to achieve she she comes across to me as sort of this epitome of a survivor not you know warrior not going to let uh, anything and not not you know we don't see her past we don't see her you know having uh weak moments she's just never she's the badass she is she just never cracks you know and everybody else does you know has their moments where they just you know Max is constantly cracking, you know, yeah. <laughs> it's, it's, he's almost, a, you know, a complete anti-hero, you know, where you just half the time you're like, dude, just get it together. Like, <laughs> you let your, you let your family die. You know, it happens. Just push well, on. You know? It really is over now. And you have this new opportunity yeah. to be of some use here and now, if you can just pull it off. Do some good. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. This well, is a Furiosa movie. Oh, absolutely. And yeah, George I mean, Miller was so is so in love with this character, right? And 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 Charlize is, was just you know a goddess for him. Yeah. You know she was so perfect for it, and she and he treated her completely different than everyone else. From the little bit I saw, you know she was completely you know as an actress was somewhat the same as her character. She was she. It's in a couple of her scenes are the only scenes that the production was used because it was just perfect to begin with. And in ADR, everybody else was put through a grueling grind of hundreds and 200 takes per line. And Furiosa, maybe six. Yeah. <laughs> no, we've got it. You know, I mean, so there's this whole, there was this whole thing, even, you know, sort of in real life that made her sort of this special, unique uh character and actress becoming the character he it just felt right to him the whole way whereas he would you know everybody else was going through the gauntlet <laughs> via george you know it, behind the scenes you know in some ways he would put put them through a gauntlet and 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 allowed her uh, she, she's already doing it just right she's you know she's fine the way she is you know um, so, and he gave her, and he gave her different training than the rest of the, um, women, right? Like, like they had, they went to the, um, Eve Ensler, uh, like the, the, that kind like her, like the, the, those kinds of seminars. And she went to like the, the guys like military war seminars that he had. Um, well, right. She had yeah. to become a warrior. The wives did not need to, although they end up being strong in their own right, they, they weren't expected to be warriors from minute one, whereas she was. She was going to be the warrior. She was going to have to be, you know, doing superhuman things. And uh, <laughs> But it's interesting how that, you know, the whole 
thing, even years after the filming, it was sort of still happening where she was, you know, sort of riding this whole different layer of arc than everybody else. I mean, made for an incredibly compelling character. I mean, I think it's, I think she's a fantastic actress, but it's by far my favorite performance of hers. I mean, you know, it's, it's up there with like Monster or something where you're like, oh my God, that's like, is that even acting? That you just became a different person. That's crazy. Mm-hmm. You don't, you don't, you don't appreciate her uh, Arrested Development story, Mike. <laughs> I love it. I love Arrested Development. <laughs> All the weird reindeer game. <laughs> um, yeah, I, I think you're, I think you're 100 percent right on that, and uh, it, it, it definitely comes out throughout the movie, and she's definitely like the most together out of everybody in the movie too. Um, which also is its own reaction to trauma, I think. Hitting back yeah, at that, yes. Yeah. Of course, yes. She has built a suit of armor because of that. And, and and there's no doubt in anybody's mind that her suit of armor, that her warrior uh, mentality is one is the only way she survived. And that that was her survival uh, methodology. The wives have, have their methodology and, and how they survived and the role that they played. And then, you know, the war boys survive uh, by their idea of of going to heaven, if nothing else, right? If if I just if I just you know succeed in in giving up my life in a certain kind of way, then I will be live forever and 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 have the most successful sort of life too, right? So there's there's redemption, as you say, but also this this method of survival that's geared into everybody at every level. Yeah, and I mean, you know, I know that Max is the only one who doesn't have a clear course to success. He's basically failed already, and he's going to, you know, yeah, redemption maybe, but there's no clear sensibility of him surviving and thriving. He barely, I mean, he barely even has a story arc in this. You know what I mean? Like, he's not, yeah. He doesn't undergo really character development. Well, besides the first one, does he ever really? Yeah, I mean, that's I guess I was gonna say that's not unique to the franchise, though. And I think one of the most interesting things I kind of picked more up on this go round was that at the end, okay, you know, Furiosa, you know, missing missing the mechanical arm, you know, battered, beaten, and tattered, like has led them back to salvation, and then Max doesn't stay. It's like he has he like his atonement is not complete for him to allow himself to stay, which I didn't really pick up on that so much the first time. Cause I think I was just sort of like, Oh my God, you know, like refractory <laughs> period. Right. But like, I really got that this time where I'm like, Oh, that's one of the most interesting scenes for Max in the whole movie that he's like, nah, man, I can't, I can't, I'm not ready for this. And I think that that's real interesting, especially for, as you, as we've basically got into that, like the titular character is not really the main character, but it's, it, that's the yeah. most important part of his arc is like, even all of this, that's happened and like him, like, you know, basically finding a reason to be again and, and assisting in this incredible endeavor that starts off as a race, uh, starts off as a chase ends up in a race, but he's not yeah. ready. He's not ready for what happens next. And that, that was pretty, that, that kind of hit me a lot harder this time than they did the first time. It's also interesting that uh, George Miller talks a lot about in all these interviews about the commodification of human life, right? The commodification of humans as the true commodity in this movie, as much as water is kind of treated as, a commodity as much as everything he's, else. He's a gas bag at the beginning. Yeah. So Max is purely <laughs> there to get the engine running, right? Yeah, yeah, so, yeah. 
So it's interesting though that you know when, it's a real when, thing. That's a real thing that they would do before they had a capacity for blood transfusions in the field. They would have universal donors hang out in wars. I mean, hang out, but you know what I mean. Like they would be around, <laughs> hang, hang with the with the thing in his arm. Yeah, literally hanging out. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> no, but like, so it's interesting. It's really interesting on like just a, a, a title level almost. Um, Mad Max, you know, isn't the main character in this. He's kind well, of. A- Fury Road, you know, that, and that's, and the way we refer to the movie really is Fury Road. Mad Max was almost there just to make sure everybody knew that there was a relationship between the yeah. movie and some no, other No, exactly. Movies. So, so that name is kind of a commodity in the sense of like that name is kind of what's selling you the movie, whereas that, you know, has very little to do with the actual, um, the plot moving forward. So that's kind of interesting that there's that connection that I didn't really make until now. But, um, yeah. Um, and I, I think that he really, like, he doesn't have like a development arc. I think he's, you know, it really is, uh, Formosa's development arc and everybody else in the movie kind of has a way of handling their trauma. I know that, uh, you know, George Miller said that, um, he kind of got inspired by like kamikaze pilots, um, for, for the war boys characters, but it kind of also reminds me of like, uh, you know, I mean, throughout the last like couple decades, you know, people get turned to like religious fundamentalism um and you know when when people sacrifice themselves as like terrorists in in these situations like kind of the same thing this like overall devotion to a concept uh, suicide bombers are absolutely kamikazes yeah so it's it's interesting that this this kind of trope of like you know uh, people that are in situations that are just so awful in so many places living in poverty that that see like uh that fundamentalism as the only way out um you know like taking that to the most, I mean, well, I mean, it's already at a pretty extreme level, but taking it to its most extreme level uh, in the war boys where their entire purpose, it's not like they're indoctrinated from different areas. Like they're indoctrinated from birth. It's interesting to take that in the, in a post-apocalyptic sense where there really is no hope of anything being different um, for them. Like, it's not like they ever see an outside world. They're turned against, they're turned into uh like these, um, I mean, because you don't really ever see them fighting other warlords or anything. You know, they're they're kind of they're they're. Oh, but in these- a sense, they're raised up from the people who are just there waiting for the water to be turned on. Right? They we get a couple of glimpses at the people around the base of the of the towering rock who just are completely have nothing you know they don't even have the honor that the war boys they can't even you know have the valhalla they have to just you know st- die of thirst <laughs> you know they have no <laughs> they have no survival no they're just they're the absolute lowest of the wretches the war boys in a sense have been lifted up into this you know so place where they have a purpose and they have a possibility for you know heaven well, and that's I why I think he... Nux's, Nux's storyline is so interesting, right? Because, I mean, like, he basically gets deprogrammed from the cult. He comes back, you know, out. And of it doesn't take very, it really, it doesn't take very much. It takes somebody right. else beating the crap out of him a little bit and then him and falling love, in love. What do you mean? Yeah. 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 I mean, <laughs> the girl. Let's not short sell it. I know you just <laughs> broke up recently, but let's not short sell it. <laughs> of course, the beautiful woman changed him. um yeah so the other the other theme i think that we just touched on that i wanted to bring up for this is like the disposability of human life and there's that great um line that that is said to him about the wives where he's like um 
you you can't own you can't own another human being eventually they'll rise up and push back um so through you know that's that's kind of intrinsically within this movie is everybody is disposable in this new situation everybody's commodified they only really exist to serve uh morton joe um so yeah so that kind of comes up over and over again and uh uh, yeah, so that's the other. That's one of the other ones I wanted to bring back if, up. If I can, real quick, I just want to think it's interesting that uh, one thing that I hadn't thought about when I first saw it was just the idea that you know, Emerton Joe is like he's he's the hero of his own story, right? Like he's not like I'm gonna go do evil now and be oppressive, and in his mind, like he's got these hordes of people that like he can't trust to look out for their own best interests, so he's attempting to do his best for them in some weird messed up you know, kind of ways that, uh, you know, unitary executive control tends to, tends to bring out of people <laughs> and has become corrupted by only thinking about the results rather than the efforts uh, to get there. And I, and I, I found his character way more interesting. I mean, visually, obviously dude is like, you know, that's a great visual, right? I loved all that, but I was thinking more about his character this time. Very sickly individual, though he doesn't. He doesn't. He's not living the good life, really. No, nope. and he's got that like chess piece that makes it look like he's got pecs, which is hilarious and, and so awesome. Like you, you know, the fake pecs. Like, oh, I'm gonna put on my my He-Man outfit, right? <laughs> it's it's also really funny that in this movie, uh, Tom Hardy isn't the Bane. Like you can kind of hear him sometimes with that voice, but like a Morton Joe kind of is is the Bane character, and he's uh. <laughs> <laughs> In, in in that in that connection but i don't know there there's one piece of dialogue that i heard that tom hardy said that i i instantly that that clicked again for me like oh yeah he was <laughs> but um yeah i think, I think uh, this is one of his better roles too and even with like the character being like ostensibly like supporting in, in some factor and even with the, the titular character being the supporting cat i think it's like one of his more interesting roles and i think he nails it too because he's and, supposed to be conflicted and lost right he, that's the point and, and the little thing of just that little uh, australian lilt that uh 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 mel gibson had as in the role you know the fact that he brought that in just you know because like um uh what was it like like uh you know uh uh charlie's theron's from from south africa and she didn't use her regular accent uh, which is which is not that far off from Australian, uh, but she used an American accent, and then he specifically got you know even though he's he's uh, he's English, uh, he's he's using you know he's he's just putting enough of that uh, the Australian lilt in there just 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 you know because Mel Gibson has a very slight the, lilt. The outtakes yeah. of the AVR, um, Tom will also <laughs> when he gets to about take fifty or sixty. He gets so frustrated that he'll start going into Cockney. He'll go, <laughs> he starts just he'll just start like literally throwing accents around. I'll tell you that that the accent is not at all consistent, and and much of that is sheer frustration with the uh, the lines. And George will still listen to every single one to see. You know, it'll start going to Cockney, and I'll, I'll look at him like we're not going to keep going through these and be like. <laughs> Next one, next one. We have to we have to take it to its whole logical conclusion. But he his accent, I think, uh, probably wavers a little. If you really were to analyze it, it wavers quite a bit. Um, but I think you're right. He's trying. He is trying to to hold Max, and and of course George is trying to have him hold Max. But but I think that that 
again, because of this animation thing or whatever, the performances line by line were so much more important, you know, for the moments to hit that if the accent wasn't quite right, he just still picked the performance over that for sure. You know, so you'll probably hear some cases in which uh, uh, the accent's a little bit, not quite, but, you know, sounds a little Brit more British here, but, uh, but the performances allow you to just, you know, ride with it. Yeah. Um, it's, it's also interesting that he seems to, uh, George seems to pluck a lot of these actors out of, um, like theater and like, uh, you know, Shakespearean work and like all of these like really interesting places that you wouldn't necessarily go to look for um, action movie actors. So I, I found that really fascinating listening to him talk about because uh, Toe Cutter is is in this movie too. Um, as like the, the main villain and like as, as a Morton Joe. So like it's interesting that, you know, in, in the original Mad Max, he brings he his, like all of the, the biker gang that he had was his uh, or his Shakespearean troop that he was going around with at the time. <laughs> Um, so I, I don't know. I, I found that I found that really fascinating because yeah, very unconventional director, to put it mildly. <laughs> Kira, did you uh, watch the original movies when when they came out? Like, were you were you? Yes, yes. I wouldn't say that I was necessarily, you know, uh, any more additionally enamored with them than a bunch of other movies. Like I had seen them, and they certainly, you know, obviously just like Fury Road, I sort of sit in this, this category, you know, somewhat on their own. Um, but yeah, I, I watched them and, and they, they stuck with me for the same reason they do with people because in the, at the time they were just so, uh, out there in left field, you know, <laughs> I, I, I gotta say when it came time for awards and stuff, the, the, the fact that Revenant was the movie, you know, that was the other big movie of the year. And, I, and and it was so hard because I was so sure that looking back, everyone would hold up, you know, Fury Road would hold so much more water than Revenant would, you know. I mean, and Revenant's a good movie, but, but Fury Road is just so unique and special, you know, and watching that happen uh, was like a, it was like a slow motion train wreck, which you knew, I just knew afterwards people would look back and go, yeah, but which movie do you want to go see again? <laughs> yeah. I mean, we covered that when you were on Protonic, but I mean, I was, I was pretty upset about that. That was the one, the one thing I was, I was sort of like, really? Like the bear, bear movie, bear movie one over, come on. I mean, you just, want, you it, just but... want him to be killed by the bear, right? Yeah, exactly. It's kind of like dances with wolves, man. You just want the Indians to kill the guy. Yeah, Why? Get it over with. <laughs> kill it, the guy. It, it it felt like when that movie won, it felt like they were kind of giving a consolidation prize for Leo a little bit because there's just been so many times he had been in like big movies and then something else had taken that spot from him. So yeah, and, and that and that does happen in the Academy for sure, but. And I don't mean, and I don't even mean this about awards. It was just this whole sensibility of like the two great movies that year. And I just couldn't see them even in the same ballpark. And it's happened on other years with other great movies. So it's certainly not a unique situation, but I had obviously spent so much blood and sweat on this one that it was, it was 
pretty hard to watch. I mean, even on the, we have these awards we give each other that, that called the golden reels, where it's basically the sound people giving, you know, sound people. So there's even a dialogue award and a sound effect award. And of course, because they had to give the sound effect award to Fury Road, the dialogue award went to Revenant. <laughs> I just I remember I just remember reading all these articles that year and none of them were like oh like the the revenants a movie you need to go see or something you know what I mean cuz sometimes like with Nomadland I think uh, people were like and I, I don't and I'm not even like that big a fan of Nomadland I mean it's a really you know it's a it's you know it's a nicely filmed movie but there were a lot of people that are like you need to see Nomadland like you know what I mean? Like, there's a lot of articles. I don't remember anyone being like... years to... in the van, dude. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Like, I don't remember, exactly. When I don't... you've toured, it's sort of like, all right, yeah, I've seen Nomadland. I just didn't see the... <laughs> no, but, but I'm saying, like, there were there were all of these articles breaking down, like, the themes and all this stuff. I don't remember that happening with Revenant. I, I remember every article coming out around that time that were like, Leonardo, like, Leonardo DiCaprio finally wins Oscar. That was That's kind of like the, yeah. the bottom line from, from that movie, you know, taking the win. Yeah, I'm sure. And and you, you could maybe even argue that, you know, performance wise, there was something, you know, that that was such a, a top to bottom performance, whereas Fury Road had so many, you know, performances going on and it had so lush with so many concepts and visuals and everything that it was it was more of a, an amalgamation of everything as opposed to a single performance. But I'd put Charlize up against him any day, personally. No joke. No joke. All right. Um, it seems like that's a good place to go to uh, final thoughts on on this movie. I mean, you know, we could definitely break down, like, uh, we could do, like, a six-hour podcast on this and break down, like, every single element. But, um, you know, I'm trying to keep these down a little bit more. Because I have a question uh, for you guys, which is, do you know what it's about? Mm. Yeah. I mean, like, but, but also, so do you know what, it, do you know what it's about can cover a lot of things, which is pretty amazing about it. Because, I mean, I think that there, there's so many answers to that. Like, obviously, like, a, like the surface level is, you know, climate disaster and, um, you know, how, how humanity would survive a disaster to this magnitude. But then there's so many different themes, you know what I mean? There's the feminist themes throughout of it, like throughout it. Um, there's the themes of like triumph. There's the themes of redemption. There's the themes of trauma. And I think all of those are, are like valid answers, which makes it a really incredible movie because I don't think any of those, I mean, I don't think any of those, uh, trumps the other one, you know, because sometimes there's like one theme and then there's a bunch of other themes below it. And I think that this is one of those movies where all the themes kind of coincide in this like really beautiful, uh, like, you know, this really, this really beautiful creation. True that. It, yeah. To me, to me, it was one that, of course, I never really got to see it cold in a single watch, you know, and then have a response to it. So I always wonder about it because people would ask me questions about things. And, and to this day, it's not black and white, you know, to me at all. It was. Is it chrome? Is it's it chrome. It's way <laughs> chrome. It's it's just not. Um, there's, there are so many themes going on, you know, we, mother's milk, you know, yeah. <laughs> put aside water, you know, okay, we've got that aspect, you know, and there's just so many things thrown in so many um, sub themes and stuff that I, I wonder, is it, is it just too hard of a movie for people to, to get on a single watch 
and that's yeah it's def it's definitely a multi-watch it's definitely a multi-watch movie i mean i think it's about humanity ultimately like both like the the loss of and the finding of and what what that means uh, for the different characters and and again you know there's nuance that i didn't catch the first time and i loved it i loved it the first time but then like there's stuff i was like oh i didn't even think about it from like this you know these folks perspective over here and like again we've talked a lot about you know the commodification of you know humans and like objectification and, and so on and so on but i i think that is just as important but i think it hits on a few levels and it hits on a few levels that things that are real like um the, the woman that's got the seeds right there's an actual seed bank i think it's in like norway or something that like you know after the bomb drops and like everything dies there's this cave that you can go to that like has all the different seeds to basically repopulate the earth yeah i think there's like, i these, think there's more than i think there's more than one of those i think yeah i think you're probably right yeah, the, like, the one like, i know about i saw some special about it i don't know like i'm not an authority on seed banks or anything but i, I know <laughs> that 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 does exist and the, the, I heard you have the number like, one. I heard you have the number one seed bank podcast. <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> it's it's very niche, but it, we do our thing really well. Conan Neutron uh, and the Protonic Seeds. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> uh, but I like the idea that they brought in actual, um, you know, George brought in things that uh, are, are real life concerns as we sort of like teeter towards apocalypse in the same way that we have um, you know, for the last forty years or so, but with much more awareness of it yet still managed to make it about humanity. I think, I think it succeeds in the same way. It's a, it's, it succeeds on the same goal in a different way than like a movie like children of men does, which I also uh, like quite a bit where it, you know, there's, yeah, there's a spectacle and like, you know, all, all the, all the crazy action scenes and stuff blowing up, whatever, but essentially it's about what does it mean to be human? How do we hold on to that in, in adverse situations? You know, what do we do? It's, it's really, I mean, movie. I mean, yeah. come on, it's a chase movie. Yeah. <laughs> exactly. It's a movie about a car chase. Um, it's, it's a chase and a race. That's you it. Chase him until you get the guy. <laughs> they chase no, him really... the desert, and they're racing on the way back. It's great. It's going to be aces. It's, uh, it's a bad, it's, bad, bad, bad backs. <laughs> it's, uh, it's, it's fascinating to have done this back-to-back -back with Snowpiercer, because I feel the same way about Snowpiercer. I've watched Snowpiercer probably 10 times, and every single time I notice something different, and I notice it from a different perspective, and it feels like the entire movie combines to be about humanity in, in much the same way. And obviously, they're both like dystopic climate disaster movies. So it's really, you know, we, I mean, we're shooting this obviously Wednesday. It's going to go up next Tuesday um, for everybody. But like, but, you know, ha talking about Snowpiercer as much as we did on Sunday, um, was like you know and then watching this movie like you know a day later or something it almost feels like it could be like a like a like, like comparatively in my mind it's like these are two movies that work on very similar levels yeah better throw on a happy feet next week or something you know like, get a power <laughs> babe pig in the woods there you go there you go pig in the city? I'm, ex pig. I'm excited to see that actually that looks great <laughs> all right uh andy he also did L lorenzo's oil just to throw just Oh, yeah. Which is an yeah, amazing yeah. movie. Forgot about that one. <laughs> uh, so, so you want my closing thoughts? Um, one thing. Well, we did not Kira asked the question. I, I, oh. I like that as an ending question. Um, she asked the, the question, what do you like? What do you think the movie is about? Um, before I answer that, I just want to throw one quick thing about color, just because um, uh, the color wasn't like a theme in the movie, like like some films uh, rely on it. However, because he took a Maxfield Parrish palette of the the orange sand against the the 
the rich blue sky. It, it just was you visually you could not stop looking at it because of those contrasting colors. And, and um, if you know anything about color theory, opposite colors look really good next to each other. That's why Maxfield Parrish's paintings always looked like that. Um, so it's so nice to see what a Brahm painting would look like if he actually used a Maxfield Parrish color scheme. Um, and, and if you're a nerd like me, you kind of get those references. If not, talk to me on Twitter. You got it's right, it's right there. Just hit me up. <laughs> I'll be happy to explain it all to you. Tell them why he's um, wrong. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Tell me why I'm wrong. Anyways, but uh, what I think the movie is about, it, it is about like uh, not just what it means to be human, but like uh, how to keep your humanity in like, uh, you know, when, when everything is commoditized and such like, uh, it, I almost want to call it a neoliberal landscape because that's kind of what it is in a way, but it's not actually neoliberalism. It's like, you know, it's what happens after neoliberalism. Yeah. Really. It's like post neoliberalism anarchism. Yeah. Yeah. Feudal art. And I'm oligarchy. I don't even know. Yeah. <laughs> dreamscape or something. Well, no, I mean, it's, 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 it's like a, it's neo-feudalism. It's what happens after neoliberalism is over is like a series of warlords probably would take over and everybody would be in these feudal situations. Now in our, in our case, they're not, uh, they wouldn't be warlords. They'd probably be billionaires. Like, you know what I mean? Like, so that's kind of our, our, the neoliberal hierarchy is like, Bill Gates has bought up the entire United States and puts a mask on. Well, I mean, Morton Joe probably was like <laughs> Jeff Bezos at one point. You know? Yeah, we got That's Elon over here. Movie. We got Bezos over there. Bill Gates said they they divide up the country. Sure, yeah. And that Look, is he... just to, to to jump on that. That is true survival, right? Is that you hold by holding on to whatever level of humanity you have survived. You don't survive unless you have held on to some kind of you know humanity we won't call you a survival or if you have lost every ounce of humanity that's not going to be the word we use but with you well and, and that's and one of that the way things that, oh, i was just gonna say that's one of the things that actually max max's arc does have is like he's gonna be like i'm just gonna be alone now like that's my thing i'm gonna be alone. and then like he kind of starts on the path to like having connections with people again but isn't ready obviously by the end like he's like nope can't hang but in, in that same way, you know, Morton Joe and everybody in his family kind of is completely inhuman in the way that they look, in the way that like they've created like these like air mask apparatuses for themselves. Like they, they're they're guzzling, guzzling. Like uh, no, they so they have all of these like contraptions over them, and uh, you know. But so. but at the same time, though, he he gives water to the to the poor plebes that that he takes care of and that's how he holds on to his humanity is to tell himself he is a benevolent dictator yeah um, but that's also how he holds on to the power but i mean that's that's but the thing is it's like any dictator uh you know that that's how they hold on to their humanity Do i mean we want to call know, him human because he gave them a little water. no i'm just saying <laughs> yeah, that that's, yeah, I mean, that's how he sees that he's holding yeah, on to his humanity. Mussolini kept i'm not saying he too, you know i, I you know <laughs> hitler probably did you know gave there's a little water in the concentration camps i'm sure you know yeah so. but biden you know biden's uh supposedly trying to let in more uh immigrants even though he's not funding the 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 the, the things that uh trump cut so so nothing's going to change but you know he's pretending he's doing something uh positive uh in a way to to uh, uh to, to tell himself that he is still human 
Yeah. And maybe when you get that much power, you get to, you only have to give lip service to being human. <laughs> That's real. All right. Well, I think uh, I'm going to cut it there. Uh, Kira, thanks so much for, for doing this. This was really amazing. And yes, this, this could have been a, literally, this could have been like a six hour episode breaking down every single theme. So um, I've been trying to have a little bit more podcast discipline. So, yeah. um, yeah, <laughs> I'm going to, I'm going to, uh, leave it there.